Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. It always blesses me to hear this. I know I was kind of running, felt like I was running over time last week, and uh, made a couple of mentions about that. I'm hurrying, hang on, just please, sorry it's taking so long, whatever. And somebody on the way out last night, I think they maybe said it to Matt, and Matt was telling me about it, asked, why does he apologize for taking the extra time. And that, of course, that's music to a pastor's ears, you know, because that, that just sounds like he can talk as long as he wants. And, and uh, I, I love hearing that. But the fact is, I'm, I'm conscious about that for a number of reasons, well, two big reasons. One is for the children's workers. They can get a little antsy if the service runs over time. Uh, not the, just the, the kids get antsy, and that starts to weigh on the children's workers. That's probably the number one reason. And the other reason is, uh, much as some of you like it, some of you fall asleep. So, and that makes me antsy. And rather than yell and scream and throw things, uh, you know, Joe Morris used to preach with a Nerf football in his hand, right? And he'd threaten to throw it at people or he'd throw it up in the ceiling, jump up on a chair. Rather than do that, I'd rather just keep it short and sweet. So I'll try to keep it moving here today. Um, or we could just sing a couple hearty songs and go home, take a nap. Nobody said amen. That was your chance. That, too late, too late, too late. We were looking last week. Uh, mm. <laughs> there we go. Mmm. Mmm. There we go. <laughs> we, were, uh, we were looking last week at, uh, spent some time looking at Paul's time in Corinth. Uh, with a lot of that time, actually, focused on... Um, the conversion of the leader of the synagogue, Crispus, and the effect that that had on the uh, on bringing many Greeks to Christ, the power of one person's conversion, and we spent quite a bit of time talking about the impact a person's conversion can have, especially considering what their past life was, what their pre-conversion life was like. And uh, here's a quote I should have shared along that line because it's not just about the person with a dramatically bad life. Uh, it, it is, it is the, it's simply the transforming power of the Word of God in every believer's life that is our most powerful apologetic, our most powerful witness. Here's a quote I should have shared along that line, and I probably have shared it before. But it goes like this. There are five Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you. And most people have not read the first four yet. You are the first gospel they will ever read. Okay? You are the gospel. You are the evangel, the evangelist, the evangelism that is going to bring them to the rest of the word of God. So it's important to let his light shine through us. And we're going to be talking a little bit more about that here in a minute. But catch you up a little bit on the history. Uh, we're in the early to mid-50s A.D. now. And uh, Paul is in Corinth for a year and a half. And as I think we mentioned last week, there was a kerfuffle with the Jews, and he takes off uh, for a, a brief visit to Ephesus and then on to uh, for a, a very brief stay in Jerusalem. He makes it there for Pentecost and then back to Antioch, his home base, um, and then leaves from there on his third missionary journey. And then he is in... Uh, we. We see him on his journey. We meet Apollos, the preacher. We meet Priscilla and Aquila. We meet uh, 
uh, some Ephesian elders. Uh, actually, we meet these. Remember, we talk, I know we talked about last week, the Ephesian disciples that he meets. We see them get baptized in the Holy Spirit. We see the seven sons of Sceva uh, get their clothes ripped off and beaten up by a, a demoniac. And then he is in Ephesus then for between two and three years. And the last two, you know, he starts off in the synagogue, of course, and then he's preaching. And then he spends the last two years teaching every day in the school of Tyrannus. And it's during that stay that he also writes 1 Corinthians. Yeah, keep in mind that during his travels and during his, when he would settle down any place, uh, later on, the place he would settle down would be jail. But whenever he was in one place long enough to do it, he would write these letters. And these, some of these letters are what we have collected in our New Testament. Now, for what it's worth, I don't know how many of you care, uh, it's pretty clear from what Paul says in his letters to the Corinthians that we have two of at least four letters he wrote. What we call 1 Corinthians is really the second letter he wrote to Corinth. And what we call 2 Corinthians is really the fourth letter he wrote to Corinth. And there may have been more, but First and Second Corinthians are really Second and Fourth Corinthians, and it's kind of fun to read between the lines there. But he refers to some of this stuff. Some important things happen uh, while he's in, uh, visiting in Ephesus. We have an account of a riot that takes place. Now, keep in mind, he's there. This isn't just him. Uh, do, you, do you remember the the uh, uh, episode shortly after Pentecost? Uh, you know, Peter and John walk into the temple. There's a healing, and there's there's a lot of attention. And then later on, we see Paul uh, go in and, and, or heals a man, and the people want to they they want immediately they respond to the things that are happening. Some people are very excited. Some people want to worship him. Uh, sometimes they shout him down. This is a little bit different because he's been in Ephesus for a number of years, and suddenly, this man Demetrius, he's a silversmith. What he does. Uh, Obviously, he cast things out of silver, but his the biggest market was for statues of Diana, the goddess Diana. Uh, and and uh, this was a big, big deal. He's, he's making these little idols and selling them. Well, when you got a guy like Paul in your town who is gifted and people are coming to Christ as a result of the ministry, what's that going to do? to the idol-making business. And this is Demetrius's problem. And he comes out and says it. It really is all about the money. But he gets the merchants in town together and says, men of Ephesus, we got a problem here. There's this guy, Paul, who's up there, and, and it's really putting a dent in our pocketbook. But more importantly, he's profaning Diana, whom all of Ephesus and all the world worships. How dare he? He appeals to their patriotism and to their... Uh, this false religious sense, and suddenly they start screaming, great is Artemis, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the Ephesians, and it turns into a full-on riot. Read this in uh, 1 Corinthians, uh, uh, sorry, in Acts chapter 19. Acts 19, verse 29 So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's traveling companions. And when Paul wanted to go go in to the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia who were with his friends, am I reading the right part here? Yeah, they would not, uh, were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing and some another for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. (laughs) 
the whole city comes out, and most of them don't even know why. And they're all screaming at each other. You know, this is what happened. We see, now we have video of it all the time. These, these, I mean, good night, nothing. Well, I don't say nothing. Few things make me madder than watching a mob go through a street, burning things down, tipping cars over, robbing stores, breaking things because their team won a ball game. And they're acting like this gives them the right. And these people are doing the same thing. They're screaming, they're throwing things, and it says most of them don't even know why they're out there. Why are you rioting? Uh, Because there's a riot going on. When in Ephesus, do as the Ephesians do. So uh, what I gather from that is this this riot is, uh, I want to start there, where is uh, demonic in origin. They don't know why they're there. Uh, but as upset as Demetrius and his fellow merchants might have been, I have a feeling Satan was even more upset because of the progress that was being made and the gospel being taught and people being saved. And he was doing, pulling out all the stops. Let's just stir up the people. If I can't match Paul, if I can't bring out somebody to argue Paul down, I'll stir up the crowd and just see if I can get him killed or at least kicked out of the city. Paul wants to go out and address the people, but the people who are Paul's friends won't even let him go out there where the crowd is. Uh, And for two solid hours, the officials tried to calm people down. One of the Jews goes out there to talk to the people to calm them down. Now, the Jews weren't always uh, on Paul's side. And this person goes out there to speak to him, and the crowd finds out he's Jewish, and they start screaming, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! If you're not going to work for worship Diana, we don't want to hear from you. Then the, the city clerk finally goes out there and says, Look, this is bad. Uh, and, and he's kind of chiding them for their whole approach to this. But also, you have to understand, the city clerk works for Rome. And Rome did not look kindly on this kind of thing. And so he said, You know, we're in danger of... Uh, <laughs> of being poorly looked upon here. But not only that, he's in danger of having a couple of uh, centurions come in with all of their troops, right, and uh, quell the riot. So he manages to get them calmed down and take it. If you got a case, make it in the courts. That's what they're for. But then Paul splits. He takes off for Philippi, collects Luke while he's there. And you can read this. uh, When we get to this part in the story, it starts saying we again. Luke is writing this. And now that he's back with Paul, uh, they, they go to Troas. And in chapter 20, uh, verse 7, this is just kind of an interesting little tidbit. He's at Troas in Acts 20, verse 7. Now, on the first day of the week, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul, ready to, to depart the next day, spoke to them and continued his message until midnight. You guys want to complain because I go to 1130 in the morning, right? There were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered together, and in a window sat a certain young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep. He was overcome by sleep, and as Paul continued speaking, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Don't fall asleep in church. And if you do, don't sit in the balcony. Are you awake, son? Okay, so uh, Paul actually 
falls goes down to the to the young man lays you know stretches himself out on him and breathes life back into him speaks life into him and he's taken up they feed him and they're much relieved so there's a nice little resurrection story right there good old Eutychus falls out of a third story window in the middle of church that just kind of blows me away falls to his death and is raised from the dead uh so then they sail to Miletus and while there, sends for the Ephesian elders. It <laughs> doesn't go back into Ephesus, you notice. <laughs> They're still kind of screaming about him there. But he goes to Miletus, sends for the Ephesian elders. And now I'm going to read a little bit of a longish passage because it's a touching, moving, important passage. This is uh, the Ephesian church. Uh, now remember, he's there for a long time. He was a year and a half in Corinth. He was nearly three years in Ephesus. And we see from the letters that, uh, the letter that Paul writes to the Ephesian Christians that he was writing... Uh, to a mature uh, body of believers by the time uh, he's writing these letters. I mean, he spent some time investing in the church in Ephesus. I loved these people. And in Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 18, it says, When they had come to him, he said to them, You know, from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I also, sorry, I always lived among you, serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except, and you'll want to remember this for later, because it really sets the stage for about the rest of the book of Acts, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things, draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. So now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied accompanied him to the ship. This is a beautiful scene. He's saying his farewell to the elders who've come to visit him on Miletus, telling him, go back, tell this to the church, how much I love you, how much I miss you, how much I, how precious our time was together. But also remember, I didn't hold anything back from you. And here's some final warnings, and I'm not going to see you anymore. Uh, 
It's powerful. It's emotional. And he's getting ready to head back to Jerusalem. And once he gets there, he will essentially spend the rest of his life as a prisoner of one form. He'll he'll enjoy some freedom, but he'll never be free again. Uh, And he'll continue to minister, but he will not move uh, except under somebody else's authority. You see, he knows that chains await him. He says every city he goes to, the Holy Spirit, and it's usually in the form of a prophecy. Somebody will come up and say, don't go to Jerusalem, Paul. When you go there, they're going to put you in chains. There are some, I've heard it preached by good ministers, who believe that Paul missed it because he was warned so many times. Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, they're going to put you in chains. I don't think he did miss it. I think you take the whole story, put it all together. He was warned so that this wouldn't take him by surprise, but it clearly was God's will for him to go to Jerusalem, even though it meant chains. Because the reason he was put in chains and and, and where his case just kind of gets kicked up to higher and higher courts, that's what enabled him to testify in Rome, as we'll see in just a few chapters. But where I want to take this before we close is looking back here at verse 21. 2021, he says, testifying to Jews and also to to Greeks, repentance toward God, and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. One of the uh, very first messages I ever preached was a message on repentance. And uh, I know a lot of you remember this. Some of you have actually quoted it to me, but I also know there are people in here who haven't heard it. Once again, bear with me. This is one of those verses I've told you many, many times, especially in this particular journey through the Bible that we are on together, where I will come across a verse that I know I've read before. Sometimes I've read it dozens of times. Sometimes I'm sure I've read it hundreds of times. And, And I'll just, as I'm reading it, something about it will jump off the page at me. This is one of those verses that did that to me first, many, many years ago. When I read that phrase, repentance toward God. Something went off inside me because when we talk about repentance, we usually talk about repenting of something or repenting from something. Uh, Now, most of you know that repentance doesn't just mean apologize. To repent means what? To turn, to turn. So it's, it's natural and it's not incorrect Say, well, I repented of lying. I repented of this. I repented of that sin. We should turn from sin. The problem is it's very easy to turn from one sin right into another. As Ravi Zacharias has said, you know, there's a thousand ways to fall down and only one way to stand up straight. And the illustration I used, and I'll try to rush through it, uh, is when when I was... uh, I don't know, late teens, early 20s, I would drive up to Chicago. A friend of mine and I would go up there to spend the day. And, you know, we had maps. We sure didn't have GPS or the phones or anything like that. You know, we might have a road map. But we, you know, other than get on 57 and go north, we didn't have much in the way of directions. But once you get far enough north, you can see the city. And unless you're on a tight schedule or have somewhere exact to be, that's really all you needed. We would just aim for the Sears Tower. That's what it was back then, the Sears Tower. It was Willis Tower. It's Sears Tower. It was Sears Tower then. It'll always be the Sears Tower, right? So uh, 
Anyway, we would just drive around, and sometimes, oh, well, well, we shouldn't have got off there. But you could just kind of navigate and just kind of aim for downtown. And again, it's not like there was any particular place we wanted to go. We'd find a place to park. We'd walk around the city. By some miracle, we'd find our car, and then we'd go to drive home. Then the trouble would start because there's nothing to aim for. It's easy to drive out of Chicago, but I have gone literally the wrong way before. Literally. I was driving once, and I was sure I was almost to 57, and I finally pulled over and asked somebody, uh, hey, how much further is it to uh, 57 South? And the guy kind of looked at me and said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Champaign. Where am I? He said, well, you're almost in Wisconsin. (laughs) You see, it wasn't enough to be heading out of Chicago. I was still getting further and further away from my destination. I need to be heading toward something. And you've got to get pretty far outside of Chicago before you've got the St. Joe Water Tower to aim for. (laughs) So it's not enough to repent from something. This verse says repentance toward God. When you came to Christ, let me ask you something. Did you turn to God when you got saved? Or did you just accept forgiveness for your sin? Did you turn to God when you got saved? Or did you just accept forgiveness from your sin? We were talking on a Wednesday night not long ago about what kind of ship is the good old gospel ship. You know, is it a a cruise liner? Is it a a hospital ship? Is it a battleship? Is it a rescue vessel? It's all those things, okay? But I'm thinking about in terms of a sea rescue vessel. Now, whether the Coast Guard or Navy rescue operation, and you've got people clinging uh, to bits of flotsam and jetsam, or maybe they're just out there treading water waiting for rescue. And so one of the first things you do is throw over a life ring or something, something they can latch onto uh, that will keep them from drowning. You have saved them from drowning. What do you do then? What does that person do then? Thanks for the life ring. See ya. You've saved them from drowning, but there's a a hundred ways to die in the ocean. You can die of starvation, you can die of thirst, you can die of exposure, sharks, lightning. You've been saved from drowning, but that's not the end game, is it? What's the end game? To get you out of the ocean and into the ship and then someplace safe. Turning to God is getting you on the path that you were created for. It's not just getting you out of hell. If all you do, here's the picture, because if we're talking about turning, I'm walking a direction, and that direction is in sin, toward sin, because it's everywhere. We live in a world of sin. And then God arrests me. I'm convicted of my sin. And somebody preaching the gospel manages to convince me that this is going to wind up in death. That's the wages that sin pays. It's going to kill me. And death ultimately means hell. And so I say, God, forgive my sin. Only you can. I can't earn it. Thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ. Thank you for the sacrifice. And we sense that God has forgiven us. We say, thank you. And we keep walking that way. God has forgiven me so that I can continue to live the way I want to live and walk the direction I want to walk. That's not how it works. He throws that ring around us and then pulls us 
onto his vessel, turns us around, and gets us walking toward him. I didn't just turn, because I could also go, woo, man, I was really into, into this sin over here. Now I'm repenting. I'm going to turn. I'm going to go this way. Well, God's over this way. We turn toward God. I don't have to worry about, you know, James writes, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. If I am submitting to God, resisting the devil is automatic. Not that I can't actively resist him, but I think we have spent a lot of energy, uh, maybe especially in charismatic circles, rebuking the devil here, screaming at the devil here. Almost, uh, I've been in prayer meetings where we spend more time talking to the devil than we do to Jesus, than we do to God. But if I am submitting my life to God and pursuing the things he wants me to pursue, I don't have to actively be not doing something else. If I am filling my eyes with his word, with things that are right, things that are just, things that are holy, things that are pure, I am not at the same time filling my eyes with porn or anger or things that do not glorify God. I don't have to concentrate on not doing things if I am pursuing, moving, repenting toward God. Does that make sense? And when Paul said he preached that, and this is where, woo, look at that. Well, praise and worship team coming up. I'm done. No, I'm kidding. We actually are about done, so praise and worship team, if you want to come on up here. Here's what Paul writes here. He says, uh, testifying to, back in verse 21, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And skip down to uh, verse 24, but none of these things moves, moves me. Move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is what you want. You want to finish your course with joy. You want to know that when you walk in, you are going to hear, well done, you thou good and faithful servant. servant. Listen, God knows what we are made of. And he made us with appetites. He made us with the capacity to enjoy life, to enjoy food, to enjoy friendship, to enjoy uh, so many of the things he made. And it is not sinful to enjoy the world that he put us in. It's not. I I believe it's sinful uh, to become, uh, to train ourselves to believe, as as many have down through the centuries. Uh, I, I think it is a sinful doctrine to preach otherwise. I think God gives us all things to enjoy, but not to worship, not to pursue. These things can be pleasant, and I believe God delights when we take pleasure in the gifts that he has given us, but one day the only thing that's going to matter is finishing our course with joy. We will look back someday if we pursue pleasure, not just enjoy life in our pursuit of God, but if we are pursuing pleasure, we will come to the day when we look back and say, oh my, oh my, look at the days and weeks and years and life I have wasted. What do I have to show God? I shared this with the men a few nights ago at our men's night that, uh, God is not going to ask you 
When we stand before him in judgment, he's not going to ask us. At least I think that's where it was. Maybe it was Wednesday night. I don't remember. Square me away, somebody. He's, ne- he's not going to ask us, uh, what would you do if I had, what would you have done with your life if I had given you this? Joel, uh, Joel Sims was sharing this with us at the RMAI thing last year. Because we, we ima- sometimes we imagine, what would I do with a million dollars? And even, even ministers, what would we do? What could we do if somebody gave us this, if we had this, or if God had made me such and such, or if I was in such and such a town? God's not going to ask you, tell me what you would have done if I had given you this. No, what's he going to ask you? What did you do with what I gave you? That's the parable of the talents. I gave you 10 talents. What'd you do with them? Uh, I got 10 talents more. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities. You, I gave you that one talent. What'd you do? Well, I didn't do nothing with it. I knew you were an exacting man. You collect where you don't, uh, you expect to reap where you don't sow. So I buried it in, in a hole. Now here it is. You got it back. Called that servant wicked. That's what we're going to have to answer someday. He's not going to judge us for how much we enjoyed our life, good or bad. Praise God, I intend to enjoy it. It's just not my pursuit. shouldn't be your pursuit. We're going to stand before him, and the only thing that's going to matter is, did we finish our course with joy? You better believe when he saved you, he put you on a course. The race that is set before us is the race that he set before you. When he saved you, he put you on a path of good works that we should walk in them or run in them. And so let us cast aside the weight, cast aside the sin, anything that keeps us from completing that course. Stand up with me. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.